Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome back to the show. Have we done anything of note this week? Not this week. It's still in this week. Is it? Yeah. I Technically. Thought, I thought Monday starts the new week. Oh, screw that, Felt. It's oh. within this week. We went to Thought Bubble. We did. It were grand. It was. You're hearing this very late on. It was two weeks ago as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Maybe even three. I don't know what the release schedule for this is. But Thought Bubble was a lot of good fun. It and was. And Stephen Lacey's there. Hello, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael George was there. Hello, Michael. And our good bestest buddy, Scott, came with us. And it was great. And we didn't get to go and see the 2000 AD movie with him. No. Because we ended up queuing up for Snyder of the Scottsville. But he was grand, wasn't he? He was. He was excellent. But we don't want to shoot your load on that particular subject. Yeah, save it for later. Because you're going to talk about it later. Well, tell him who you saw. Um, I I bought out half of Becky Cloonan's stock. Yeah, I I I saw you being all adorable with Becky Cloonan. I saw you being all flirty, dude. I was. No. You were totally being flirty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was watching you from afar, was, was making your, your moves right, yeah. on Becky Clooney. Totes what I was. Did she talked to you longer than she talked to anybody else. Is, is it, yeah. That's a fact. Yeah, I was yeah. timing it. Well, yeah. Hi. I was. Yes, I was very impressed with you. Okay. Uh, you doing? <laughs> That's you were all about the how you doing. Oh, I was. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, Cliff Chang was there. Cliff Chang was there. Mm-hmm. Yes. The little sketch of my book. Uh, what did you get signed by Cliff Chang? Well, Wonder Woman, Satana, and the Neil Young. Oh, right. Oh, the Neil Young thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Excellent. Uh, Jeff Lemire. Jeff was there. Got my comics signed from him. Excellent. Which mm-hmm. ones? Which ones? Yes. Uh, Justice League United Zero. Ah. Also signed by Mike McCone. Oh, signed by both. Yeah. Impressive. Uh, Most impressive. Justice League Dark Nine. Okay, why Nine? Because that's the first of his. Right? Oh, all right. Okay. Animal Man 29, the last of the series. Oh, alright. And, um, which you have a Green Arrow 17. Was that his first one? Yeah. With, um, I'll need to read them because the art looks great. Mm-hmm. I like them a lot. Uh, what did Snyder sign for you? He, he signed, uh, Superman Unchained. Wow. Number one? Number one. Should we cover Superman Unchained or should we cover Jeff John's John Romita Jr.? Uh, Unchained because that's just one bit, that's a story. So's the John Jr. one. It's not finished yet, though. Well, no, it hasn't. That's true. Anyway, carry on. Um, Swamp Thing, issue one. Okay. Also signed by Yannick Paquette. Wow, so it's a twofer. It is. It is. Um, Did they ever say anything when they see it signed by somebody else already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they? He, he, he said it was pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks, though, Scott. <laughs> yeah, he said, oh, cool. And, uh, Jeff Lemire um, thought it was cool that Mike McCone had signed it as well. Right. When did we see Mike McCone? London. Right. Did I not see Mike McCone? I don't know. Did you take off and do that one on your own? Well, I was chatting to John Bogdanov. 
No, it was and urging him to go to Port Marion on Sunday, I think. And the, the magnificence that was Howard Chaykin. Yeah, he was great, wasn't he? He was, yeah. <laughs> uh, what else did I get on the film? Superman, duh. duh. Oh yeah, and uh, Batman issue one, because the very first New Fifty Two. Yeah, it's an issue one, mm. and uh, the first issue of Zero. Yeah. Wow, mm. very good. What did I get signed? Death of Comics 27. Yeah. Not the original, obviously. No. The new one. <laughs> he signed that for me. He did. That was very nice. He was a lovely fellow. Very he nice was. man. So that was Thought Bubble. Yeah. And it was great. However, what we have to mention, particularly, is I got gifts. I did. did. I got gifts. I'm going to get one of them down. Plural. Yes, 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 yes. Stephen gave me a fantastic French comic. Didn't he? Yes, he did. And it's like the old British... La Fantastique. La Fantastique. Well, it's called Nero, but yeah, La Faux Fantastique was in it. And uh, other stuff. Yeah. It's called Marvel Presente Nova avec les Fantastiques. That's an excellent accent. It is. It's a very thick cardboard square bound, isn't it? It's yeah. like the old pocket books that Batman and, uh, Batman and Superman used to do. And inside, there are... Three complete strips. Le Four Fantastiques, which is a story by Steve Englehart with that by Keith Pollard. Peter Parker, alias Laragni. <laughs> Peter Parker, alias... <laughs> the Spider. The Spider. And Le Surfer d'Argent, which I presume is the Silver Surfer, obviously. The Peter the Parker issue... Silver. The Surfer of Silver, yeah, <laughs> is Jerry Conway and Sal Buscema, so that from Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. And the Silver Surfer is also by Inglehart with that by Ron Lim. That actually looks really quite cool, because I've never read any of that. The scrolls are in it. It looks really quite good. And there's an advert for Les Stranges X-Men. The Strange X-Men. Yes. I presume. Which uh, is starting the premiere adventures of Des X-Men by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. So they're starting from the beginning. And there's also an advert on the back for uh, a magazine called Strange. Stan Lee presents, and the cover is the Hulk, the Submariner, Warlock, and Thanos. That's actually really cool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I really liked this. I thought this was brilliant. Comics from foreign lands. What a weird thing. Yeah, I'll have to learn uh, GCSE French again. Now, from 1988, this one. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, quite, you know, cool, huh? I yeah. like that. However, my other gift was from his lovely girlfriend, Blandine. I got a Doctor Doom bobblehead! Listen! Doom does not like you shaking his head. Doom will kill you where you stand if you do that again. He does look really intimidating for such a cute little thing. He does. It is quite impressive how it can be really cute yet scurry at the same time. It's kind of like got a Mogwai vibe on. Do not feed Doom after midnight. Doom does not eat after midnight. That is when you pack on the calories. Wow. Doom giving us dieting advice. (laughs) Doom does not shower after midnight. Was just exposed him to water generally, wasn't it? Doom does not shower! That explains a lot. Shut up! I think I better put Dr. Doom down before uh, Dr. Doom exterminates me. You will put me down! I am not to be manhandled! Doom is Doom! Okay! So Dr. Doom Bobblehead yeah. has now stood back on the bookshelf. He's kind of glaring at us. He, he is. His eyes follow you around the room, don't they? They do. Anyway. He, he watches us whilst we eat. <laughs> and, and other things. Um, thank you very much for my presence, Stephen and Blandine. Dr. Doom is... Uh, is yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop looking at him now because he's, he's freaking me out a little bit. <laughs> uh, our first email this night is from Sir Tom of the Panarese, who does Pop Culture Affidavit, which is also a part of the Two True Freaks Network, and The Nam, which is a podcast about... Guess what? Guess what that podcast's about? 
The Nam. The Nam comic book series. Exact amount. Okay. I thought you were going to say it was about the Boer War. Oh, yeah. That's that's the first place I would have gone to. See where you can get confused. Mm. And the Batman Universe podcast all about Batman. Yeah. Well, Robin, specifically. But Batman's in it, obviously. Because yeah. you can't have a Robin without a Batman. And all those you things are well worth checking out. Because Tom... In addition to doing excellent podcasts, where's the greatest American hero t-shirt and his little icon on our email? So that alone makes him pretty cool. He's talking about the Image Comics episode. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Tom. I waved at him. You did? It's pretty, it's an audio medium, isn't it? I wanted to write in and say that I finally worked my way through nothing but the 90s, copyright Michael Bell, and it was exactly as awesome as I expected. That's excellent, because that covers a lot of bases, because if he expected it to be a small amount of awesome, yeah. then we more than met that. Mm-hmm. If he expected it to be a big ball of awesome, we probably would have disappointed. There is that. I have a soft spot in my heart for the much derided early part of the decade, because I first started collecting comics in the summer of 1990, when some of my friends started reading Batman and Detective Comics, and I followed suit, picking up both Bat books as well as The New Titans, a book starring a team that would be the centre of my comics collecting universe until The New 52. But that's a whole other discussion. Now I have remained a DC guy since then and I think that's why I was able to avoid dropping money on worthless books with shiny, shiny covers. But that's not to say I did not fall prey to some of the crazy gimmicks the decade is known for. I clearly remember when I went to visit my friend Chris down in Florida in the summer of 92 that he gave me a copy of Spawn Number 1 then explained to me the entire idea of Image Comics and why I should jump on board. I honestly had very little idea who any of the Image creators were at this time but Chris was one of the few friends I had who was into comics so I jumped on board. I never bought an issue of Youngblood except for a Spanish language copy of issue 0 I found at a street vendor's table in Barcelona. <laughs> The change of language did nothing to elevate that god-awful piece of tripe, but I did get suckered into the first issue of Bloodstrike with its Feel the Blood cover, which you should totally pick up for Michael because I'm sure he's worn out his copy of Batman 500 by now. (laughs) I also own all of Deathmate. Oh dear God, I own all of Deathmate. (laughs) I'm glad we're here for this therapy session. (laughs) Thomas realised that just by talking to us that he owns all of Deathmate. And we're here for you. I can just see him sitting down in a big circle. My name is Tom Panarese and I own all of Death, mate. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Image Anonymous. <laughs> oh, I do like that. You know they would so do a book called Image Anonymous. Yeah. Contributions from different writers now. Except now it'd be good. Yeah. Because it would have, like, Sean Phillips and Steve Epton and whoever it is who does Saga. What's that? Oh, if you want to see That's the one. Tom continues, but really I dipped my toe in the pool instead of diving headfirst, despite Wizard Magazine's constant promoting of Image and all the times American Entertainment, Entertainment this month, said that the latest new Image title was, say it with me, HOT! Except for Spawn, which I stuck with until about issue 60. Luckily I got a decent amount of money for those comics on eBay back in the early 2000s. Quite a lot of people stuck with Spawn, didn't they? Yeah. There must have been something about... I stuck with Spawn, and Professor Allen stuck with Spawn, and Tom stuck with Spawn. Yeah. There must have been something about Spawn that made us go, this one doesn't completely suck. Maybe it's because everyone subliminally thinks McFarlane's good. And do you not? Yes. 
Okay. Subliminally, you think it's good. <laughs> yeah. All right, fair enough. Tom's email continues, Images, books, especially anything to do with Liefeld, can now be found in most 50 cent or quarter bins, where they taunt comic store owners and old comic fans like myself, reminding us of our past sins. But hey, at least we had fun. And I had fun listening to this episode. One last thing before I wrap up this long-winded email. I don't know how much Spawn you read, but the book tied into Youngblood in a very important way, as Al Simmons was one best friends with the Youngblood member Chapel, who was the person who wound up being contacted to kill Al, presumably because he'd gotten close to finding out some big secret or exposing some big secret, I can't remember what. And one issue of the series, as well as an issue of, I think, Youngblood Strike File, deals with this. All the best, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. We are glad you enjoyed Net But Nanties, which is what I'm going to call it, so that Mike's lawyers don't get on my back. Because Net But Nanties is completely different to nothing but the 90s. It is. Completely different trademark, completely different copyright, despite the fact it has the same characters in it. Yeah. We're in the same costumes. Yeah. It's a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And my lawyer will see your lawyer in court if you disagree with me. Derek Crab emailed in. Hey, Kids Comics, Volume 3, 41, 42, 199, 200. Wow, that was an intro, wasn't it? It was. Hello, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Derek. Thank you for some nice trips down memory lane with your recent episodes. Just some quick responses to various things mentioned. Man of Steel, number one. I may also be mistaken, as I did not verify my claims, and I certainly don't want Alan Moore to have any more ammo for his same tired, recycled ideas tirade, but I'm going to have to say the burn moment from Dave Gibbons in Superman Annual 11, for the man who have everything, is the first angry, red-eyed Superman moment that has since been done ad nauseum, as you suggest. That's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that because For the Man Who Has Everything does indeed predate that issue of Man of Steel. So thank you, Derek, for pointing that out. Number two, whilst I can concede that John Byrne's plot for Man of Steel 5 is indeed lazy, it's simply because it is taken wholesale from Superboy issue 68, which was probably taken from Universal's Frankenstein picture. So maybe that's why it feels like it's missing some beats for you. Yeah, that is incredibly lazy, isn't it? He did that with the Laurie Lamaris one as well, do you remember? No. That was a panel-for-panel panel redraw of Laurie Lamar- Lamaris's original appearance. Yeah. Apparently doing a reboot if you're going to do that. Oh, is that the Mermaid one? Yeah. Right, yeah. You know, like Dead to Mermaid in college, because didn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember it, but I must have. Well, yeah, we all did it. Yeah. It's a fact of comic book life. We all dated a mermaid. It was fun. For the most part. That whole tail thing, that was a bit much. Especially <laughs> when you tried to get a seat at a, in a restaurant. I do explain the tail. What if you get a short straw though, and it's top half fish? That's true, but all in this, what's the name these days of equality? They had to let you in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to make a special room for you, <laughs> and they could not serve her fish. No, oh. no, that would be bad. Mm-hmm. I like a bit of fish. I think that's why it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, it may be worth mentioning, I can't source this exactly, but I recall an editorial or interview where Byrne stated, had he gone back and done Man of Steel over again, he would have saved the first half of issue one with Krypton for the final sequence in issue six. I guess to further hit home the idea that this origin was unknown to Clark at the time, but that as iconic as the story was, it didn't occur to him to not start with Krypton until after it had been published. I have also read that. So Derek, your mind is not playing tricks on you, at least not with regards to that particular nugget. Can't attest to any other time your mind may be playing tricks on you. Number four, also worth mentioning, Superman running for president did make use of the clever, clever, my way of calling out Burns overthinking a story point, birthing Matrix in Action Comics number three, Executive Action. Right, so that would have had him have to declare that he was born in America, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. DC versus Marvel, Marvel versus DC. Forgive me, are these two comments maybe slightly snarky? Good. 
I like a bit of snark. Nothing wrong with that. Snarks and boojums. And boojums? Yeah, it's a poem by, um, oh, the name temporarily escapes me. Lewis, no, not Lewis Carroll. Somebody else, it'll come to me. Maybe it is Lewis Carroll, I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, number one, I think asking what happened after Superman 1 punches Juggernaut is being obtuse. There was nothing else to happen. He punched Juggernaut like Batman punched Guy Gardner. He hit him so damned hard, Juggie ended up becoming a good guy and led the Ultraverse team, the all-new Exiles. Insert shameless plug for Shag Matthews' Ultraverse podcast here. It's very good of him to plug somebody else's show yeah. in his own email. I would expect him to plug his own show, but, you know, we'll do that later. Number two, whilst I can understand a blind hatred for certain comic characters and do not begrudge you your non-acceptance of Lobo, I would just like to point out the same argument made for Wonder Woman and Storm, which I wholeheartedly agree with, can easily be applied to Wolverine and Lobo, or even Namor and Aquaman. Lobo holds his own against Superman. There's no way Wolverine could do a damn thing to Lobo, just as Aquaman can't do squat to Namor, or Storm couldn't do squat to Wonder Woman. To be completely fair, I probably have a blind hatred of Wolverine at this point and laugh my ass off at Confederacy dunces every time I read it. Also, that stupid bash dick is pure genius, but I'll take Tommy Monaghan over Wolverine delivering the Smackdown any day of the week. Okay, two points there. One, I still would have liked to have seen Superman vs. Juggernaut. I think that would have been funny. Yeah. You're probably right, though. It probably did consist of a uh, one punch. That, in his, that would have been a funny gag in Marvel vs. DC, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Somebody saying Juggernaut take that one punch. That would have been funny, but they missed it, because, you know, whatever. And number two, I completely concur with what you say about Wolverine and Lobo, but I don't like Lobo, so... (laughs) And we don't actually see what Wolverine does. No. As far as we know, Wolverine just wedges him. Yeah. And that takes him out of the game for a minute, which by the rules set down by Yin and Yang, or Superman Red and Superman Blue, or Optimus Prime and Megatron. Megatron. Oh, you know what they were? Do you remember that game that you played with a big blue robot and a big red robot, and they just fought each other? the boxers. Yeah, they were them, weren't they? Yeah. Whatever that game was called. Between them. Yeah. And uh, so he could have just wedged him. Yeah. Which, again, we should have seen. That would have been funny. Little Bobby wedged. (laughs) That would have been amusing. Has that never been done? Not as far as I know. I mean, but I don't, the, my knowledge of Lobo yeah. could be fit into a thimble, <laughs> quite frankly. Take care, guys. I'm glad that this is indeed not the end. It's never the end. Derek, thank you, Derek, for emailing in. That was good. I enjoyed that. Um, History of Comics on Film, hocof.blogspot.com is Derek's, plus the Fan Holes podcast, a pop culture podcast by the fans for the fans. You can go and check those out at fanholesepodcast.blogspot.com Our next email is from Mighty Mark Lax, who just says, Happy Anniversary Leylands! Your 200th episode was, was truly phenomenal. Well, thank you. Not only was your podcasting at... People are saying nice things. Uh, was your analysis, analysis of Burns Man of Sea was spot on, but you read my email. Well, you're very welcome. This was the greatest moment since God taught to Moses. I don't know about that. <laughs> don't call me sugar. <laughs> uh, okay, sugar. Chief. Chief. <laughs> the, the chief wants a coffee. Black. No sugar. Anyway, truly, guys, I enjoy your show very much. Your discussions on my favourite topics are fun to listen to, and you made me laugh. I've only recently discovered all the Superman and comics pop culture podcasts. I'm having a great time listening to you and your fellow podcasters. Congratulations on 200 episodes. Now I'm going back to listen to the first 185 that I've missed. Yes, I've got that much spare time. Looking forward to looking back on the 1980s when I started collecting. A wonderful time should be had by all. Your pal, Mark Lax. Well, thank you very much, Mark, 
for the very kind things that you said at the beginning of that email that I stumbled over. <laughs> 200 It's Alright from Chris and Cindy Franklin. Hey. Yay, 200 It's Alright. I see what he did there. Hey. Hello, Leylands, you had me going. From the artwork on your website, I assumed you were doing Brave and the Bold issue 200, but then I remembered you were coming full circle, so Man of Steel made perfect sense. I remember being really jazzed for Man of Steel. As Andy pointed out, the Superman books had been pretty lacklustre for a long time. The introductions of the new Luther and Brainiac, the superpowers versions I call them, being the last truly great comics other than the few you mentioned. Even at the tender age of 11, I could tell the influence of Superman the movie was very strong in this new version, and that being my favourite go-to version of the character, it didn't bother me one bit. I liked the Kents being alive, and despite having plenty of Superboy comics, I didn't miss him as a young crime fighter. The football player angle never worked for me either, but Clark did become a football star in later seasons of Smallville, despite Jonathan's protests. I still don't think it really works in any version and prefer Jeff East's Towel Boy. Burns Lois was... Um, well, she ended up being a didn't she? She's not as bad here, and some of that wide-eyed Margot Kidder enthusiasm is on display, but Byrne took her into Phyllis Coates on crack territory, and it would take Stern, Ordway, and Jurgens to actually make her a likeable character. Byrne and Wolfer may argue over who created the businessman Lex, but LexCode debuted in Elliot S. Maggin's Miracle Monday novel, so maybe they should all split the check. I had a much harder time with Superman and Batman not being chummy, and I realise it makes sense, but I believe I read Man of Steel 3 before Dark Knight Returns, so this was all alien to me and just seemed flat wrong. I did enjoy Burns' Batman, but there's a reason Magpie very rarely returned after this. Do you think that reason would be she wasn't very good? Could be. Mm. Margaret Pie. (laughs) (laughs) The Bizarro is who what them? The Bizarro issue was pretty weak, and Andy, I totally get your problem with the mystery chemical versus flying aliens and cloning. There are some things you can suspend your belief on, and others you can't, or shouldn't be asked to. Man, Lana looked rough. Her being a super stalker was only the beginning of her woes under Burn. He made her a manhunter, but let's not discuss that. No, because DC didn't. DC just forgot all about that. Yeah, Lana was a manhunter. We will never mention it again. (laughs) Byrne did seem to throw up the finger to all the Krypton mythos by saying, who cares? But he became a fan via the George Reeves TV series, so that may have had something to do with it. Besides the first episode and a few appearances by Kryptonite, Superman's alien heritage was hardly ever mentioned. I would argue that Christopher Reeves' Superman was very influenced by Jonathan Kent after meeting Jor-El. After all, it was Jonathan's voice Superman heeded when he decided to say screw it and save Lois by turning back time at the climax of Superman the movie. You are here for a reason great episode as always and I salute you on your 200th episode you guys are undoubtedly the most dedicated podcast I know of and ever having missed a week and consistently put out quality episodes week after week no filler and you certainly have not only entertained me but inspired me to get off my ass and do my own show so here's to however many more shows you are willing to gift us with Chris well thank you very much Chris that's very sweet and Chris's podcast is Supermates which you should go and check out because I think it's really rather good Mm-hmm. I do. I think it's great. So, inadvertently, us getting him to get off his ass and make a podcast is directly related to Chris and Scott getting off our ass to make a podcast. <laughs> so it's all part of life's rich tapestry, yeah. isn't it? In many ways. We will knock it on the head for the e the and we will return after we've played a promo for a show of some description. You can work that out, can't you? You're yeah, editing this one. Don't do it with me. <laughs> Back in a moment... R. What's that stand for? Robin. 
Hello everyone, this is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? Uh, I'm right in the middle of uh, recording a, an ad for my, my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy Wonder time. Boy Wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. And we're back. Indeed we are. Um, so I've not really written an intro for this week. Because you're a lazy, work-shy fop. Well, not that, but it's... it's (laughs) Not that. (laughs) Yes, that. No... It, it's the second part, and there's not really much you can say about the second part that, you've already, that you haven't already spoken about the first part. That you didn't do in the introduction to last week's episode. Exactly. Okay. So, as we said, uh, it was Thought Bubble uh, last weekend for us, and we met Scott Snyder, who is, of course, the writer of Batman at the moment. He is. He is. And um, all in all in wibbly-wobbly jelly that I was... I, I'm, You're a big wimp. I mumbled something to him that, in my head, sounded like <laughs> coherent. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. I just, <laughs> in my head, it sounded witty and urbane. In real life, it came out. Like, I love you, Scott. Your writing's awesome. Scott, Scott Snyder went. Yeah, so I'm backing away now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A lot closer to the truth than you'll ever know. I, I, I thought there was a reason he's he's security guard, so <laughs> came closer to me. <laughs> anyway, get on with it. Yeah, so yeah, I, I told him I was really enjoying Batman. Um, what him and Greg Capullo was doing was great, and he said that his proudest story was Zero Year, and I told him that is my favourite of his Batman stories, and is my favourite Batman origin. And he seemed genuinely um, touched. Yes, by this. And he, he explained to me what Zero Year was all about. Well, tell us! If I can remember. Oh, man! We didn't have the recorder with us, did I know, we? I know. But what he was saying was that Zero Year is him expressing all of his fears and opinions of the world through Batman. So it's about him being scared of what the world is and how he's in his fears about bringing children and grandchildren into the world when there's you know so much crime and even natural disasters such as hurricanes and such and it's about how he feels about bringing children and grandchildren into this when there's so many problems around us <gasps> which are things he, he, he brings into this such as the hurricanes and the the, the, the super crimes and also it's about his anxiety as a comic book writer and how, because of how comic readers are and how they've become to expect so much of him now that he's written big selling stories like The Court of Owls and The Death of the Family and including Zero Year, it's about how he's 
anxious to meet fan expectations. Yeah. That's so, actually pretty cool. Yeah. Isn't it? So, See, I, so I didn't have anywhere near as profound a conversation with him. No, I know. So, so <laughs> <laughs> you cheeky. Oh, bugger, he's got four of these same comics yeah, and I've got to sound. some other guy gave me. I actually did have a conversation with him. I told him you were my son and he said, oh, you did a good job though. Yeah. Which I thought was quite nice. Yeah. And then I told him what I've said on this show many, many times that I think this will be up there with Engelhart Rogers and O'Neill and Adams. Yeah. And he did genuinely go, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> he just he seemed like such a nice guy, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But I believe that. I honestly believe that. And it was, I was glad to tell him yeah, that I do. I think you will look back on this run, however long it lasts, as long as he doesn't completely screw it up in the final third or whatever. But I think this will go down as a classic seminal Batman run. Mm. I really do. Well, I did tell him that I feel that Snyder, he and Capullo are, are making a Batman story that's altogether a, a large piece of art, mm. told in comics format, and that. As long as he was writing Batman and Capullo was drawing it, then he would, uh, you know, he'd You'd always be buying it. he'd always live up to expectations, especially mine. Oh, and he, he he seems genuinely quite touched by that, and that's what I like about um, people I really like who are famous when they seem genuinely touched by what you have to say to them. Well, it's it's knowing your level of fame, isn't it? Yeah. Let's be honest. At thought, but he's cock of the walk. Yeah. But you know, he goes out and wanders through Leeds no one knows who the hell he is mm-hmm. so it's he seemed quite humble yeah and you kind of appreciate that a bit more don't you uh, yeah he, he was very appreciative of his fans as well when he came out and apologised yeah. to all of us he apologised that we were stood out in the rain and he was late for the image panel yeah because he was signing our comics for us and promised to stay yeah, after the show yeah he promised he would come back after the show if everyone didn't get the book signed mm-hmm. which was uh, really nice for him. he was a lovely fella he was I have nothing bad to say about him Mm-hmm. To be honest with you. Anyway, should we talk about some comics? Okie dokie. Uh, so, we're starting off with Batman issue 25. So, this is the second act in the Zero Year trilogy, essentially. Yeah. It's one big 12 part story, but in graphic novel form, it has been released as three graphic novels four. of four issues each. Four, four graphic novels. Why four? One collecting all the tie ins. Ah, screw them! The tie ins, I've only read Green Arrow. What did Scott Snyder say about the tie-ins? I, I don't know. There were nothing to do with him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was basically said, Dan Didio basically said, Ah, oh, another big story. Let's grow our fans. I mean, let's milk... I mean, <laughs> let's do a big tie-in for the fans. Yeah. And Scott Snyder basically said, Look, if people want to do that, that's fine, but it's nothing to do with my story. Yeah. So you don't need them. It was only in the Bat family, so... No, it wasn't. Superman did one. Superman yeah, yeah, did a zero-year yeah, yeah. issue. Well, I only read Green Arrow, because I'm green and green arrow. Oh, so that counts as the Bat family, does it? Tenuously. <laughs> Very tenuously, in that they're both published by DC. Yeah, but it, it was a thing that reeked of, let's tell a story... It which, reeks of what he did with Black is Which Night. throws Green Arrow into Gotham, mm. for it, X it, reasons. It stunk of what Didio did with Black is Night. And it stunk of what Didio did with... What was the other one he did it with, with Snyder's Batman? Was it Death of the Family? Yeah. It stunk of that. Well... I don't mind commercialism. Yeah. I don't mind capitalism. I dislike blatant cash grabbing. Yeah. And that's what Didio did with all of these, isn't it? Blackest Night was supposed to run in Green Lantern. Blackest Night, they did well with. It never tied in, or it only tied into very little series. Everything outside of that had its own tie-in miniseries. 
so Batman had a three issue but wasn't that the one series. where we were like if you hadn't read the issue of Green Lantern then the story made no sense oh no because I don't consider Blackest Night and I don't consider Green Lantern to be Blackest Night tie-in you consider it part of the story because it is it's Jeff Johns telling his story and his titles and in Blackest Night yeah alright Anyway, Batman issue 32. 25. 25, yes. Why did I say 32? <laughs> what a buffoon. Numbers always were a problem for yeah, they were. I think it was. Uh, the cover's the same as issue 21, only all black. The logo and bat signal are embossed, which is nice if you run your fingers over it. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, I get what they did with them. This one's dark. Yeah. Because of what's going down in the story. And then the fourth one... The third chapter, it's more... It's green and orange, isn't it? To signify the Riddler. Yeah, well, and the jungle. And the, the jungle and the lightning up of the story as it yeah. gets into the final chapter. But I don't know that I, I think it's any good. Do you? No. Do you think... Did Capullo get paid for that cover? I don't know. It, it depends. If isn't it just a reprint of the other cover? Yeah, but it, it depends on if Capullo designed it or if... It was a graphic design. Well, the cover is credited to Capullo and uh, Placencia. Placencia. That's the colorist. Placenta, whatever. A colorist? A colorist did that? What did they do? Spill some black ink on it? That's not coloured. <laughs> it's a different colour to the other version. Yeah, that's, all right, I'll give you that. It's a different, different colour and there are different shades of black. Yeah, yeah. None more black. <laughs> Wait until you see the variant covers. Yeah, I have where not it's, seen. Where it's red and white and... I, I can uh, hardly wait. Yeah. Anyway, shall we uh, tell the lovely people that Scott Snyder wrote it, Greg Capullo and Danny Mickey drew it, and then tell them what happens in it? Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, I did, what did you think of the cover? It's grand. <laughs> grand. Yeah. All, all four issues were just titled Dark City... No parts. So is that what the second graphic novel's called? Yeah. Dark City. They all have a city. So part one, Secret City. Part right. two is Dark City. What's the third one? Savage City. Oh, alright, okay. The GCPD searched the streets of Gotham in the blimps until a unit, having found the suspect, set up a roadblock at the end of a tunnel. Believing to have the upper hand, the police are shocked when a purple car speeds down the tunnel. The car's tyres shift into place and suddenly springs and leaps over the roadblock. With its front two tyres positioned above the hood, the car glides away. Gordon and Harvey Bullock investigate the crime scene where the chase started. In front of the two is a huge contorted skeletal corpse, the victim's bones having grown out of control. Bullock blames the bat, but Gordon dismisses this by asking why would he show up to the two crime scenes to take clues. The victim, speculative but a botanist for Wayne Enterprises, had only one witness to the crime, Dr. Pamela Isley, his assistant, who seems to be more concerned about the plants than the victim. Bullock informs Gordon of her statement, saying she saw an unknown person with a skeletal figure leave the labs with a valid pass. Gordon says that with the Riddler, the current skeletal deaths, and the incoming Hurricane Rene, the police need all the help they can get. In the Batcave, Alfred complains about the bats, to which Bruce says he, he sorted that problem out by using a signal jammer, similar to the one used by the Riddler. He says that the Riddler shut down the city's power grid as part of a riddle, and that when Gotham Light and Power have the power back up again, hopefully before the hurricane hits, Riddler will shut down the power again, showing that he's pulling the city's strings. 
Moving on to the current deaths, Bruce says that the blood samples he obtained from both victims don't make any sense. Both victims were Wayne Enterprise researchers, and the formula that killed them was injected on-site and forces the bones to grow out of control radically, twisting and contorting the victim. Having run a check on the formula in databases, Bruce was surprised to learn that Wayne Enterprises holds the patent for the formula, developed by Dr. Carl Helfern, a former Wayne employee with all records erased and is also known as Dr. Death due to the high number of deaths caused through his formula being used in illegal labs. Bruce says he's about to head off to speak to somebody and explains to Alfred that he refuses to inform the police because, he says as he climbs out of the Batcave, there isn't anyone on the force worth a damn. He climbs out to find Gordon standing outside. Gordon welcomes Bruce back and congratulates him on his speech outside of Ace, but Bruce brushes past him. Gordon awkwardly apologises for what happened that night Bruce's parents were killed, knowing that Bruce is still angry at him for what happened. Bruce says he has to go, but Gordon asks what's down the hole he just climbed out of. Alfred panics, but Bruce lets Gordon look, and, as he does, Bruce presses a button on a device in his pocket that sends all the bats in the cave flying out and into Gordon's face. The generators that power the manor are too cumbersome to keep inside, he says, so they have to keep them in the cave. However, they attract bats. Bruce then leaves, saying he has better places to be. Bruce pays a visit to Lucius Fox, a man hired and well-respected by Philip Kane at the Gotham University, and asks him about Helfern. Lucius hired Helfern when Kane brought him in along with other members of the team, two of which are now dead. Helfern's idea was to create a formula that would bond to bones, making them reactive, meaning that whenever the bone was struck, it would harden and create new cells to protect it, but then Lucius pulls out a needle saying it was his project just as much as Helfern's, and stabs Bruce in the neck as Dr. Death, the skeletal figure described by Isley, approaches from behind. Wow. Mm. Very dramatic. Uh, the opening scene is set in Nigeria. We do not know the relevance of this until part four. At the very end of part four. At the very end of part four is this time we will find out this is Helfern's... Sun. Sun, yes. Yeah. And Tokyo Moon is written on all of the helmets of the people because of the song that is sung at the beginning of, is it part two or part three? Three. Part well, it's not three. all of them, it's only the descendants. Part three. Yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. The descendant, so, the Hellfern descendants. Yeah. So, it was just four kind of things, throwaway sequences yeah. that didn't have any correlation until... Until you get to part four, where yeah. it all pairs off. It's brilliantly done. It is. And structurally, this story is magnificent, mm-hmm. isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's very well drawn and very well coloured, and I love the over-lighting, the over-exposure of it, yeah. because it's taking place in a hot, dusty country. It's all white. Yeah. I mean, this is in contrast to the heavy blacks and uh, the colour scheme that have typified Capullo's work on the rest of this run. This is almost white, isn't it? Signifying the oppressive nature and the temperature of where they are. I loved Holy Door in the Floor. Yeah. Come on, that was funny. Although contextually that makes no sense. There isn't a Robin yet. No. For them to, to make that gag. And well, I there presume... There's a Robin. Well, I presume there's not oh, a yeah. 60s TV show either. No, no. <laughs> It's, it was just a throwaway line for the reader. And it's funny. Yeah. So, all right, we'll, we'll let it go, because it's, uh, it's funny. That's what I like. Again, the splash is two panels 
from later on in the story? Yeah, well, is it the explosion from the end of part one, or is it the explosion at the end of part two? It's an explosion, of which there are many. Yeah, yeah. So, that's fair enough. I liked it. I think it's uh, it's absolutely great. The two-page splash on the next page. The fleet of dirigibles donated by Wayne for yeah. Gotham. A dirigible hovering over a Gotham city that has a red sky. Yeah. What does that remind you of? It is the animated it's series. It's the animated series, isn't it? Dun, 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 dun. Well, it's all just a slightly darker animated series. I don't know that this is that dark, to be honest with you. I think there's an awful lot of levity in it that elevates it from being... It's, it's Thematically, there's some darkness to it. It's gritty, but bright. Yeah. Or dark, but light. And you're still dealing with somebody who's obsessed with the death of his parents, which is inherently dark. Yeah. But I actually think there's an awful lot of this to keep it the right side of gritty. There's an awful lot of humour in this. It's also the colour scheme. Yeah, the like colour even, palette. Even at night, during a city blackout, you've got a red sky contrasting against the black cityscape contrasting against the, the searchlights on the blimps. Mm, it's beautifully done. I don't know that this would be as effective in black and white. No. This is one of those rare times, because they're, they're releasing a lot of, like, what, Batman Noir. Yeah. Where they've republished Long Halloween in black and white, and they're doing Dark Knight Returns as well. Are they? They're doing Dark Knight Returns without the colours. I can, I can see Long Halloween definitely works, because we look through it, mm. and it looks great. Can't see him doing Dark Knight Returns, though. No, that's what's next, apparently. Oh. But I can't see this being as good. I mean, we'd have to have a look at it. Yeah. But I, the colour palette of this of this series has just been so good that I can't imagine this being as good in black and white. Mm. Like I say, we'd have to have a look at it and see what we think about it. Batman flees from the cops in his own inimitable fashion, again, as seen done in earlier origins, such as Year One and Mask of the Phantasm and Back of... Batman begins, sorry. Here, earning its inclusion by being genuinely funny. Yeah. Uh, Batman's reaction to all of this is an almost understated humour in contrast to his usually bleak demeanour. And the Batmobile riding on the roof of the tunnel. Yeah. Which is a callback to the adhesive boots he was trying on in part one. Because that's what he's using, isn't it? That yeah. same adhesive. Is, is really funny. I mean, the cops will get their own back on him. Yeah, well, at the end of this particular story arc. There's a throwaway line in this. Yeah. About well, the grenades the cop has, the lemon candies. Right. Which he leaves. Do, he doesn't put in the Batmobile, but he puts in the Batboat. Right. And That's he, very he, good. Yeah. It's very... It, it bores multiple readings. Yeah. Which you can't really say about a lot of stuff. Now, you'll read it and it's just disposable and you'll forget about it. But this really stood up. And it really stood up to going back a couple of pages as well. Did you do that? What? When you were reading it, going, right, he's referenced this earlier on. And going well, back a couple of pages and making it all fit together. When you get to the last issue yeah. of the lot and it's a callback to the first issue. Mm-hmm. It's very, very well good. It is. Very, very well good. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't make sense in English. But obviously Scott Snyder is better at that than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very well done. Is what I meant to say. Also, this has a really cool Batmobile that only appears this once. Yeah, we never really see it. I mean, what is it? It's like a 50s dragster. Yeah. It's it's a it's a big purple hot rod. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what it is, isn't it? It's completely unlike any other Batmobile, which is good. Yeah. Because you do kind of get a little bit bored of the homages Burton. to the Tim Burton one or the 60s yeah. one, much as we like them. 
I think it's nice that we've got a completely different Batmobile. I don't know how pr- um, practical a fleet of blimps are. Yeah. But I do like that Bruce gave them to the Gotham City PD. <laughs> to spy on to them. To spy on them. So, I suppose it kind of works. Can you imagine how a cop's going around in blimps? It'd be pretty cool. <laughs> It'd be pretty cool, but not very practical. Bullock and Gordon's conversation again shows Snyder's keen ear for dialogue and lays out the battle lines. Gordon thinks it's a waste of time and manpower searching for Batman when the city has been blacked out by this Riddler guy. Bullock just thinks Batman's a nut. Yeah. (laughs) Which is quite funny. (laughs) Bullock's odd in this. You don't get that he's a corrupt cop, do you? Maybe he's not in this. It's possible. It's possible that he's not corrupt in this. Pamela Isley's in it. Which is quite cool, as opposed to... uh, What's her name in Gotham? Ivy. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit on the nose. Um, The deaths of the people is attributed to Carl Helfer and Dr. Death. So we've moved past the established origin and into later issues of Detective Comics. Death first appeared in Detective issue 29 from 1939. He's been updated a few times in the intervening years, but the Golden Age version was considered the first supervillain that Batman fought in the original Golden Age continuity. So is that why he's here now? Yeah, it's a real shame this couldn't be issue 29, isn't it? Yeah. That would have been really cool. It's a pity it's issue 25. It would have worked out very, very well. The deaths themselves are really gross. Mm. I mean, I suppose that's what your darkness could... It's never grotesquely violent, though, is it? No, but it's the little things like the bones breaking. Yeah. And because that's something that can actually happen, it's quite cringing Mm. to see. When the bones snap. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't think this was... Did the violence in this... I didn't think there was much, to be honest with you. No, it's really well balanced how dark and light it is. Mm, it's it's an exceptionally good piece of work. Gordon shows up as Wayne leaves the cave, which I thought was a nice touch. As he said, to my mind, there isn't anyone on the force worth a damn, just yeah. as he gets up in front of Commissioner Gordon. Oh, sorry, is he Lieutenant Gordon at this point? I think so, Gordon. Yeah. No, he must be a lieutenant, because he's getting banged back to Chicago at the end, isn't yeah. he? Um, because Bruce doesn't really think much of it for reasons that we'll get into as we go along the facial expressions in this scene as well are so good mm. when Bruce, the look of pat shock on Bruce's face he sees him and how he's standing with his nose up to Gordon because mm. he recovers quickly my favourite bit is Alfred getting out of the hole in the cave yeah. and going oh, <laughs> Gordon's here Yeah. oh dear that was quite funny. Especially since he's done all in silhouette. Yeah. And he, he's panicking expression when Gordon says he wants to look down the hole. Yeah, when uh, he says, let him look. Yeah. And Alfred's like, no, this is going to go badly. It's over before it begins. Slight problem with the colourist, though. Why? Look at Gordon's scar. It's two completely different scars. Oh, has the colourist done that? Oh, yeah, they're different directions, aren't they? Yeah. Right, yeah. Maybe he got more than one. Maybe. No prize explanation. Okay. It's still a scar on his face, I suppose we can live with it. I like the idea as well that Bruce Wayne has set up this idea that Batman and Wayne are two completely separate people from the beginning. Well, that was Alfred. People have now seen, in quotes, Batman and Bruce Wayne in the same place at the same time, even though they didn't actually 
Yeah. They think they did. So once you've seen them in the same place, at the same time, with your own eyes... Yeah. You're never likely to go down the route once again that they're one and the same. Mm. It's like the, the Silver Age, Bronze Age stuff with Superman, isn't it? Lois Lane was always trying to prove Clark Kent was Superman, but the amount of times she's seen them together, yeah. you'd think at some point she'd go, oh, right, well, they can't be because I've seen them together. Yeah. So I really like that he set that up from the beginning. Mm. The very first person Batman is attributed to having rescued is Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Which so, is why Alfred said he did it. Yeah, it's really good, and I really like it, because it gets rid of all that secret identity shenanigans. Yeah. But it's not like your secret identity stuff was ever a big factor in Batman anyway. You've always got the idea that Gordon isn't interested in knowing who he is. Or he does know, he just doesn't want it confirmed. Well, he may suspect, Yeah. but he doesn't want to know. Mm. So, yeah, that's that seems uh, perfectly good. The dialogue's brilliant between Gordon and Bruce Wayne, isn't it? Yeah. I, Snyder's dialogue in this is absolutely fantastic I thought it was great I really did some nice wrinkles being added as well that Gordon was somehow involved with the Wayne investigation after their deaths which um, he was in Batman Begins as well wasn't he yeah it was Gordon who took Bruce into the um, police precinct mm. in Batman Begins I don't remember if he ever was before that I know he is in the games yeah in year one he only came to Gotham as Bruce Wayne returned as an adult. Right. So he wasn't in Gotham in year one, and in pre-crisis continuity, Commissioner Gordon was in another place at the time the Waynes were shot. Yeah. Because remember the Wraith storyline, the player on the other side. Mm. That's what Gordon was doing when the Waynes were shot. Yeah. Does it not also age Gordon about 20 years, having him there when Bruce's parents were killed? Yeah. It's, well, it depends. I mean, how old is he supposed to be? Wayne is only supposed to be 26 here. Yeah. Have they said he's 25 or 26? Uh, so Commissioner know. Gordon could conceivably be about 36 to 40 at this point. Yeah. So that only makes him 45 in current day, mm. five or six years after this, doesn't it? Yeah. So it kind of works. He has to... I think he has... He doesn't... You don't want him being a Bruce contemporary. No. I don't think. He does need to be a little bit older. In the original story, he was the same age as Bruce's dad. Yeah. And Bruce was considerably younger than him, but that seems to have been ironed out as we've gone along. Um, Bruce really doesn't like Commissioner Gordon. Oh. And we'll find that out later on. He goes and sees Lucius. Oh, I love him doing the, what's his name? Let him have a look down the hole. Yeah. And then he triggers the bats with the thing he's got in his pocket and all the bats come out the hole and scratch Gordon's face, Mm. putting him... I mean, having it be bats... Seems like that may be a clue. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, alright, fair enough. Wayne Manor's full of bats, apparently. A lot of manners could be. A lot of manners could be. Especially in caves. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he doesn't want Commissioner Gordon knowing that, does he? Well, he does know that. Yeah, he does know. He goes and sees Lucius, which is a lovely scene. A lot of good dialogue in that scene. And then it's Lucius that stabs Bruce with Dr. Death's formula. Mm-hmm. Oh, no! That was actually quite shocking. It was, yeah. I'm going to go with that, because you don't expect Lucius to do that. Because even though it's the first time Bruce has met Lucius... Mm. It's we not, have yes knowledge of Lucius. Yeah, Morgan Freeman doesn't stab people. <laughs> Unless it's Andy Dufresne. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Um, don't look, those your favourite advert for DC All Access. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's, ooh, Dr. Death with his crooked teeth. He, he gets a lot worse later on. His big poppy-out eyes. And our first look at the Tokyo Moon helmet. Yeah. 
which is uh, really quite impressive. This issue also had um, backup strip. a backup strip about Harper Rowe, who's a Scott Snyder regular. Yes. And it's got to be said, uh, it's called Player in the People in the Dark. Andy Clark did the artwork, which is in no way bad, but he's Batman's not as good as Snyder's, is it? It's not. But... It's not awful. It's not. And I, I really like him, but um, I think it's lacking the dynamicness. Yeah. It, the, the other stuff in the issue is much better. Yeah. And I like it quite a lot, but that shot of Batman's a, a bit much. Starting to take elements from later stories continuity-wise and adaptations of the origin isn't a bad thing, when, as here, the writer puts his own spin on familiar-to-comics readers scenes such as building the cave, making Batman's equipment and Lieutenant Gordon. Making Gordon not already Commissioner de ages him, something that was first mooted in year one and adopted for Batman Begins, but here at least he's still a veteran cop rather than a rookie. Uh, I prefer the original take on Bullock, that he was a corrupt cop sent to destroy Gordon who changed his ways due to Gordon's influence rather than the more popular version today. A cop who was always there, but this isn't a deal breaker. It removes some of his rougher edges. Yeah, but I like I like the Bullock who was turned good by Commissioner Gordon. He's still the same Bullock in the current timeline. Yeah, he is. I mean, that's, it's not a deal breaker or anything. Yeah, it just seems Bullock seems very reasonable and actually quite likable in these stories. Whereas you kind of you kind of preconditioned to when Bullock starts, he's a bit of a tosser. Mm. and he, he lightens up as he goes along. It is hard to talk about these as individual issues, though, isn't it? Because yeah. you want to talk about them as a whole, because that's how they work best. But did you like it? Yeah. There's, there wasn't much there, really. It's just character beats. Yeah, it's it's very definitely setting up Dr. Death, yeah. and setting up the Batcave, and his relationship with Commissioner Gordon. But there's the little things in there, like, well, why does he not like Commissioner Gordon? Which is completely different from every other yeah. origin of Batman, isn't it? In every other origin, he liked Gordon, more Which or less, from the beginning. what this story's about. You could argue that this story isn't about Doctor Death; it's about Bruce and Gordon. Yeah, which is yeah, he's just the bad guy. Yeah, and he's not a particularly—I don't want to use the word compelling because he serves his purpose as the bad guy. He's a good bad guy. Yeah, but he, his story's rather lackluster, isn't it? It's not important in yeah. the grand scheme of things. It's Batman's story. It's Gordon's story. It's Nigma's story. And it's—he's not important within the story itself. He's no. just a pawn. He's a pawn of Edward Nigma. Yeah. Basically, but he's he's oh, he does he serves his purpose, hmm. doesn't he? Batman issue twenty six: a skeletal hand rises from the dirt, an empty riverbed from the looks of things, in front of Gotham as a tiny Batman stands upon one of his fingers, conjuring up images of early Gothic Batman as well as the Neil Adams supernatural issues of the seventies. Is no bad thing. Lovely colouring job on this one as well. Yeah, of uh, the sun setting over a blood red sky it's a pretty great colour you like that one yeah yeah. I, I really like the, the colour throughout the series because you have your flat colours and then there's really textured bits you know how the sky is uh... mm. well that's photoshop filter is it <laughs> tell us about that is <laughs> tell us about this one Bruce wakes up to see smoke around the room and Dr. Death holding Lucius up by the throat. Hellfern monologues about how it's Lucius's fault that he was fired from Wayne Industries and injects the stirrup bone in Lucius's ear, painful but ineffective as Lucius is immune to the formula. Bruce pushes Lucius out of Death's grip but is thrown into a jet engine. 
Bruce attracts Death over to the engine by throwing his belt inside to make noise. As Death investigates, Bruce turns the engines on with Death inside. Bruce rushes to Lucius's side, who says that the injection was a vaccine that he created after hearing about the other two deaths. Before they can escape, however, a monstrous Dr. Death grabs Bruce's skull and crushes until he blacks out. A bullet suddenly hits Death, releasing his grip on Bruce. Gordon stands in the doorway, but Death jumps out of the window and runs away. Bruce wakes up in a hospital with Alfred watching over him. Bruce is in a hurry, despite having a linear cranial fracture, as the repairs on the grid will be finished in roughly 24 hours, and he's still not finished the jammer to stop the Riddler once it's repaired. Trying to get out of bed, Bruce sees that his foot is chained to the bed. Gordon steps out from behind the curtain. He says that he believes Bruce is after Hellfern, and so is he. Not the Force, just him on his own. And that since the two are after the same man, then they should work together. Swap notes. But Bruce refuses, and asks where Gordon got his coat from. Gordon just avoids the question, so Bruce tells him where he got the coat from. Years ago, when Bruce was a boy spending his days truanting in Gotham, Gordon pulled Bruce out of the cinema and took him back to the station to wait for his parents. On the way there, Gordon and his partner, Dan Corridan, stopped at several places. Bruce asked why did they keep stopping, and Gordon said that every police car has their own area to protect, and that this is theirs. Bruce felt so safe and happy, so much so that he was unaware that the coats Corridan brought back from One Stop were payoffs. Bruce snaps the handcuff on his foot and grapples Gordon, disarming him and aiming his gun right at his face, reminding Gordon of the view he had that very same night behind that very same cinema. After handing the gun back to him, Bruce storms off, demanding Alfred give him his formal work. Watching Bruce leave, Gordon is approached by another officer who gives him a note with a green question mark on the envelope. Batman approaches the Gotham Weather Facility, a facility that weaponizes weather on the stormy seas. The two surviving scientists are inside and Batman plans to get to them before Hellfern does. Once inside, Batman spots a scientist, but as he turns around, Batman can see his face is completely skeletal and his bones begin to grow in front of him. As he does, the police approach from behind and open fire on Batman before he can even move. <gasps> Good ending. Yeah. Absolutely blind and ended. Nice to see the Mark of Zorro making a reappearance instead of that silly bat opera from Batman Begins. Uh, Snyder was playing with our expectations on the first page. Bruce watching Zorro has connotations for the reader. So we automatically assume this is going to be a retelling of the origin. But no! Snyder is twisting expectations again. This is merely Bruce playing hooky from school. Mm. Oh no. Really good panel layout as well with a film reel. Yeah, it's, 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 I've seen that done before, but it's still great. Yeah. Bruce munching on his popcorn while he watches Zorro. Why would Commissioner Gordon come and arrest him? I think he's taken the mic. And you know what I mean. Has he yeah. just been sent after him by Thomas? The police don't cart truancies away. Last I checked. Yeah. Maybe they do in Gotham. Maybe. Got nothing else to do, have they? If they're all corrupt. <laughs> Uh, I was a big fan of the fight with Dr. Death while still being horrific and scurry. Bruce has a sense of humour mm. throughout this entire battle, especially since he's not being Batman. Um, the, I love the line, what is it they say, sticks and stones may break my bones? Or is that jet engines? I can never remember. And <laughs> pulls him into the engine, yeah. which is very Mal Reynolds. Mm. And uh, still very, very funny. And it's not that Bruce is being flippant, he's still fighting for his life, but... There's an element of toying with his opponent here 
that works. He disarms death with a quip or two. It's a little bit Spider-Man. Yeah. Bruce's humour runs a little bit darker than Peter Parker's, though. Well, it's his cockiness believing he's better than Doctor Death. Funny, though. Yeah. And he, it is... It's nice to see Batman making a joke. Mm. After years of, of just being grim and... Uh, and not particularly likeable. And it's lovely that Lucius isn't a bad guy after all. Yeah. He injected Bruce with a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Cool. What, what is pretty cool as well is on the title page, once again, they have two panels that mean absolutely nothing until later on, mm. with a dog's The dog's ripping somebody apart. And the tribal dude. Yeah, and so the dog's ripping somebody apart doesn't play off in this issue. It doesn't. It's great, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's really well done. The tribal dude is from another issue as well. It's this one, I think. Is it? Yeah, because he's in Bruce's dream. Oh, yeah. Okay. Although, what's really, really kind of gross is Dr. Death crushing Bruce's skull. Yes. And uh, that he very nearly kills him. Yeah, because once again, that's something that can happen to Yeah, him. it's vaguely realistic. Snyder does a very good job of making it believable. Yeah. Despite being... It's very comic booky in a good way. Mm. But he still keeps it on the right side of realistical. I like Bruce's shaved head. Yeah. There's, for some reason, when I read this the first time, that was quite shocking. I don't know why. Yeah. Because we're used to him having her. And here you've got Bruce wearing his shit. And he's like 25. Mm. So of course he shaved his head. That's what 25-year-olds do. But he's... he's thinking more about Batman than Bruce Wayne's appearance yes he is but it was just such a visual difference yeah such a a a subtle visual difference that this is a different Batman yeah than the one you're used to and I thought it was actually really really well done and he's barely been Batman and he's nearly died twice yeah he's not particularly good yet isn't he you know um Bruce being locked up in a big ball in the cave reminded me of Dark Knight Rises. Where he's got to get out of the, the hole in the floor, you remember? You know, after he's no. had his back fixed. Oh, yeah. somebody just going... Yeah. Like Tom Conti just pushing it back in place. I wish you could fix our backs like that. There's a line as well... I don't know whether the editor was asleep, but Commissioner Gordon said, because you're right, even in the midst of a terrorist attack and a coming superstorm, all Loeb sees is Batman, a vigilante who's popular is an embarrassment to him. Should that not be popularity? Yeah. I, think that's a bit, I wonder if they'll fix that for the trade or if people haven't noticed. Probably not. We should we should have pointed that out to Snyder. We should have. Shouldn't we? Should, does it get that fixed for the trade, dude? <laughs> and he would have said it's too late, the trade paperback's already out. Yeah. But then we could have said, all right, we'll get it fixed for the paperback. Is the paperback not out yet? Isn't it just hardcovers at the minute for this? I don't know. Get it fixed for the paperback, dude. Get on that editor. Who was the editor of this? Sleeping on the job. Mike Mertz and Katie Kuba sleeping on the job. (laughs) Fire them. Give us the job. (laughs) We could totally proofread comics for a living. We could, yeah. It wouldn't be a a terrible way to to earn a living, would it? There's an element at play here that Gordon is a corrupt cap. There's an element at play here that Gordon is a corrupt cop, which is a step in a direction I'm not sure about. But hey, it's Snyder, so I'll give him benefit of the doubt. He's not put a foot wrong yet, has he? No, I kind of read it as though Gordon was unaware until he started... Until he got the coat. Until he started questioning why they did it. Right. Because it's always Corrigan who makes the stops. So, do you get the impression that when Gordon says we're just checking in, every car in the neighbourhood has a neighbourhood to protect, and this is ours, we're making sure everyone's safe, Gordon believed that at that point. Yeah. Whereas Bruce interpreted it as Gordon was in on what was going on. 
I don't even Because he doesn't take Gordon in with him, Corrigan, does he? No. So you thought Bruce here knew they were payoffs and such? No! Bruce takes him at his word, though. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm arguing, is Gordon being truthful, though? I got Whereas you, Bruce, yeah. later on, looks back on this and thinks that Gordon was spooning him, though. Yeah. Spoofing him. Yeah, because that's how it... Yeah. But maybe but I was just... actually, Gordon isn't spoofing him. Yeah. Maybe I'm just biased towards Gordon, but I read it as though Gordon believed what he was saying. Oh, I did. And I think Bruce is missing to... When he got given the coat, though, for me, that's when Gordon knew something wasn't kosher. Because he goes back with the coat after this. Yes. Yeah. That's my thinking. Up till this point, Gordon was not aware of the complete and utter totality of the corruption in Gotham City. No. So what he said to Bruce here was genuine. Yeah. Whereas Bruce later on perceives it to not be genuine given what he knows later. Hmm. But both of them are wrong. This yeah. moment is key for both characters in that Bruce thinks he's been genuine, but when he looks back on it later, he Bruce thinks he's corrupt. Yeah. Whereas this is the moment that Gordon realised that the corruption in the police department was very pervasive. Mm. That's my interpretation of it. It's a key scene for both Bruce Wayne and James Gordon. Yeah. And it's very, very well done. It sets up the relationship for the rest of the title. Yeah. Basically, a misunderstanding on Bruce's part... Yeah. And the naivety that Gordon had with him at that time. And also the relationship between um, Gordon and Bruce Wayne and Gordon and Batman in the last Zero Year issue. Yeah, and the relationship between Gordon and Corrigan. Yeah. Which pays off later on as well. Mm. It's brilliantly written, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely fantastic. You just think uh, Gordon's a very laid-back police officer, though, when Bruce Wayne steals his gun and aims it at him. Considering you can get arrested for doing less... Well, he does actually say, if you're going to arrest me, arrest me, but I'll never trust you and your crooked men. Yeah. So you kind of think, Gordon's not really got anything to arrest him on because he gives him the gun back. Mm. And let's be honest, Bruce Wayne can afford a phalanx of lawyers. Yeah. So what would be the point? Mm. I do love Alfred's reaction, though. Yeah. Because Alfred is very, I think you're going a little bit far here. It's all about the facial expressions. Yeah. The first Snyder's not Snyder. Capullo's facial expressions are absolutely brilliant. Capullo could tell a story without any words. Did they not do that? Was the zero? Oh, he didn't draw the zero issue, did he? Yeah. Did he? Yeah. That, there wasn't a lot of words in that one, was there? There were loads. Oh, was there? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of something else. Could be. Maybe I'm thinking of one of the other zero issues, and I'm mixing them up. All right, fair enough. The ending's an exceptionally good cliffhanger. Yeah. Again, reminiscent of a scene in Year One, but a completely different take on it. Batman, they just open fire on him. There's no preamble. Mm. They come in through the door. There's no messing around. They open fire. Although, the penultimate panel on the page prior to him getting shot, that is so Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. There well, is that panel of him against the brick wall. Yeah. Spoiler, isn't it? There are so many visual callbacks to previous Batman Origins. Yeah. And Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. We've had a couple of callbacks to Dark Knight Returns. Uh, it's a great follow-up. It's fair to say we're past the origin here, really. This it's, isn't just the story of Batman's origin anymore. It's Batman becoming... Yeah, it's Batman, Batman. learning how to be Batman. Yeah. It's more like Batman's first case, which it is, mm. in many ways. As an expansion of some early detective comic stories, this is past the origin and really a, a focused compression of Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy rather than a straight-up origin tale. This isn't a bad thing, because mm. you can essentially tell Batman's origin in one page. 
Yeah. Can't you? And people have them. Yeah, and people had it all in a couple of panels. Yeah. If you remember the original origin from 1939, it was only two pages. The one Paul Dini and Alex Ross did the splash pages. Did, yeah, did the splash pages. Well, that was two pages, was it? Yeah. So essentially, they did two pages is as well. A, a double page spread. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, did you like number 20 says it's pointless asking did you like it isn't it more or less yeah. <laughs> <laughs> issue 27 the Batman has morphed into a bizarre creature on the cover the mouth underneath the cowl is all jagged teeth and dinosaur like protuberances are emanating from his chest mm. very good cover very very moon of the wolf yeah from the 70s despite the fact he's not a wolf but you know what I mean you kind of get that baying at the moon feel from it yeah it's the howl yeah good good cover Very and good cover. pretty gross at the same time yeah the way his spine's breaking out of the back of his neck and his bones are sticking out of his yeah, chest yeah yeah it yeah, is a bit much that <laughs> anyway badly beaten Batman throws smoke pellets and tries to climb out but the police have the roof covered so he fights his way out of the front door where his bat boat explodes in front of him so he runs back inside and into the diving tank where he grabs an oxygen tank setting it off and riding it out into the sea. Outside, he's greeted by Gordon on his own boat, and Batman reluctantly agrees to climb on. Gordon tells Batman to take his mask off before the acid from the police fights can erode into his eye. To make sure he does, Gordon gives him his glasses, as without them he's practically blind. Batman asks how did the police know he would be there, and Gordon tells him that the Riddler sent a note into the station saying that they were working together, but he had grown tired of him, and told the police where and when he'd be. Batman then asks why did Gordon save him, and after a while, he's given an answer. Because of Bruce Wayne. Wayne recently reminded Gordon of something. Three weeks after his transfer from Chicago to Gotham, he had picked Bruce Wayne up from a cinema for truanting and was given a coat at one of the car's stops. Seeing the look in Bruce's eyes, Gordon decided to return to the store on his own later that day. In the back of the store, he found a dogfight and members of the police watching and betting, one of which was Gordon's partner, Corrigan. When Gordon kicked off, Corrigan let the dogs loose on him. Gordon could hear the crowd cheer on the dogs and place bets against him until he resorted to using his gun against the feral dogs. Gordon then aimed the gun straight at Corrigan who grabbed his hand and told Gordon that he had bet on him and asked him if his son and daughter also liked playing with the dogs. Gordon left to walk his beat to prove a point, to prove that he wasn't corrupt like they were. So he walked his beat until he heard two gunshots in an alley. So even now Gordon wears the same coat to prove that he hasn't forgotten what happened inside the police force. That or out of shame. But now things are different. Bruce Wayne has returned to Gotham, and he and the Batman are making changes in Gotham for the better. Batman tells Gordon to stop the boat. He turns around to see that he's alone on the boat and finds his glasses in his chest pocket. Putting them on, he stops before he crashes into a pier. Alfred finds Bruce in the caves finishing up the jammer and tries to persuade Bruce into letting Gordon help and say he'll take it under consideration but has to go. He searches the Gotham catacombs, believing that a shrine to skeletons would be the perfect place for Hellfern to hide his lab, which he finds. What Batman finds is blueprints for some kind of doomsday machine built from things he's stolen from scientists he's killed. Batman works out that Hellfern is working for Nigma, who appears on the screens in the lab. 
The Riddler says that he's been using Hellfern to steal equipment from the machine so that he can speed up the effects of the incoming hurricane and teach Gotham a lesson as he floods the catacombs, drowning Batman in a sea of bones. Ooh, the opening sequence. Not the Tokyo 1946 bit, which just seems very random. Until you get to yeah, issue four, doesn't yeah. it? The opening sequence where Batman is being pounded upon by the Gotham City Police Department is very exciting and fast-paced. He gets shot at, he uses all the tricks in his utility belt um, to get away. It is a play on the year one scene by Frank Miller and Ms. Because <laughs> I never got that name right. But it is very, very implausible, which is why it's so fast and action-packed, yeah. isn't it? Batman gets shot in the head in this sequence and I kind of don't believe that any amount of Kevlar or protection will protect him from the battering he takes here at such close range well he is bleeding quite he is bleeding quite profusely I'm going to give you that and we do see him so again he gets the crap kicked out of him He's, he's just a bit rough around the edges by that you mean he's not very good yet. Yeah. Which is, is fair enough. I don't, I kind of found it a little bit difficult that he got he took one to the head and he was still okay. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it's alright. I like the panic he does. Because he's not thinking clearly in this, he's reacting. No, he's not super cool Batman yet, is he? No. Which is, is perfectly acceptable. I did love how he got away. Yeah. I mean, the Riddler's been a, a steady presence through the story. And let's be honest, he's sometimes treated like a bit of a buffoon. But he's clearly Batman's equal in terms of his intelligence. And it's his intel that allows the cops to almost get the drop on Batman. They're not clever enough to have figured this out themselves. No. So the Riddler's helped on them. And they've closed off every avenue of escape. And Batman gets away through a mixture of intelligence and dumb luck. There's a little bit of dumb luck in it. Yeah. But I love he uses an oxygen tank to propel him away underwater. But he uses one of the ears on his cow like it's a shark fin. Yeah. So when they see it zoom through the water, they just think it's a shark. That's smart. Yeah. Because that only works because one half of his cow has been blasted off, so he's only got one ear. Yeah. That's clever. I like that an awful lot. And Gordon rescuing him reveals that he's more allied with Batman than the police department. Yeah. Because he is actually in a police boat, though. He should really turn him in, shouldn't he? Yeah. But he doesn't, because he's Commissioner Gordon. I really like the last two panels on that page. What, were Gordon just waiting there? Yeah, yeah. And um, your Carl. Batman's looking away, and then and he's, the last panel he's just getting on Because you get the idea, he's looking away, and he's thinking about He's thinking about not going with Gordon, because yeah, he yeah. still doesn't trust him. I, I just love the panel of the floating head saying, Come in, Cave, come in! <laughs> just right in front of Gordon. Yeah, it's like he still doesn't trust him. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's exceptionally well done. And I did like the touch of Gordon giving him his glasses. Yeah. So he can't recognise his Bruce's face, which is true. Mm. When I took my contact lenses out, I'd struggle to be able to describe a face from more than 10 feet away. Yeah. So that actually kind of worked for me. It doesn't explain him not recognising his voice. Well, maybe he's... You think he's got that thing on? Yeah, yeah. Like, that, like Arrow has. Yeah. yeah he's, uh, still, he's still El Batmano. <laughs> he still talks like Christian Bale. The Mexican wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gordon's origin story regarding Gotham and its corruption is really quite chilling and magnificently executed by Snyder because it's all flashback mm. of Gordon finding the, the dog fights 
and them setting the dogs on Commissioner Gordon and them yelling you can do this you've got this and Gordon realising they're cheering the dogs off yeah. they want me to die it's brilliant isn't it and uh, Corrigan's only defence of this is I bet on you dude Yeah, I bet on my partner mm. and it's there's just something very chilling about it there's quite the chilling line where he says do your children like playing with dogs and then the next day he sends them a puppet yeah which is still there for the rest of the uh, yeah, they keep the, well, yeah they keep the dog because he knows but they don't yeah that's fair enough isn't it maybe he's training the dog to attack him maybe that's uh, that'd be quite good the panel at the top of the page with Batman in the rain with the lightning behind him was one of the covers to many of one of the many reprintings of Dark Knight Returns it's been done loads of times after that as well mm, so again another nod to the past or the future depending on yeah. how you you want to look at it and the final pages where Batman figures it all out mm. is really dramatic and exceptionally well executed, which excuses that as soon as all this water starts pouring in, it would affect the electrics. Yeah. So from the top of the penultimate page, the Riddler's monologue would get cut off. Maybe the wires are insulated. Well, even still, they get swept away. Yeah. So that would unplug them. But the scene wouldn't be as cool if you didn't have the Riddler monologuing over it. Yeah. So we'll kind of let reality slide for the sake of good drama. Because it is great. Yeah. The, I love the two pages here of Batman just putting it all together mm. and figuring it all out and looking at all the clues and you can see his mind working. Yeah. It's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. As is the issue. Lots of good characterisation for Commissioner Gordon, Bruce and Alfred. Some absolutely stunning set pieces. The beginning escape, Commissioner Gordon fighting the dogs, the flood at the end where Bruce figures it all out. The art's magnificent, the dialogue flows beautifully. It reads like a master novel with every piece seeming quite random suddenly just becoming part of a wonderfully constructed whole. There's very much a feeling that, despite what Snyder said about how daunting it was to tackle Batman's origin, he's had this planned for a while. He's not just thrown this together. Probably the best single superhero comic currently on the stands just got better. Yeah. Um, The only other superhero comic I can think of at the moment that gives me as much unbridled joy as this one is Daredevil. Mm. This was marvellous. It was yeah. ab- pun intended. It was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? Mm. It still is every week. Yes, it still is the the favourite one to read every week. Even without the, the well, every month. Yeah. Even without the the getting more out of it with hindsight, it's still a great read every. It is. Month. It is something we need to go back and reread it all again because it's just fantastic stuff. Absolutely brilliant. Issue 29, cover a question mark and the Batman drowning in a sea of skeletons. Was this double-sized? Yeah. It was more expensive and it's thicker. Yeah, this one was double-sized. Ah, right. So it's not triple-sized like the end of the first one? No. Quite disappointing, though. Why? That it's not triple-sized? Yeah, yeah. once you have a triple-sized issue, you can't go back to... You can't go back to double. You can't go back to a double-sized finale. All right, fair enough. Tell us about this one. Um, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> you can tell me about the cover if you want it's, it's damn good it is it's alright it seems very familiar disappearing to skeletons it was Hellblazer yeah cover of Hellblazer wasn't it John Constantine disappearing of skeletons was it yeah right. one of um, Fabry's right okay as the hurricane covers Gotham the GCPD evacuates civilians Gordon receives a call from Batman telling him that he needs to be at Wayne Enterprises 
The hubs that Ridley used to black out the city were in the shape of a curve, and Wayne Enterprises is the dot in Riddler's giant question mark, and so Batman believes that that's where Nygma is hiding. Since the power will be back up any minute, Gordon needs to be at the building before Nygma receives word of the grid is back up. Batman pilots a bat's blimp as he explains everything to Alfred. Hellfern stole a remote hacking hub, a hyper-repeater designed to boost small signals and a weather balloon that, once high enough, could deliver a blast that can shut down the whole city. Inside Wayne Enterprises, Gordon calls Corrigan, who's down at the grid repairs. Gordon tells him he needs to stop the grid from being turned back on, but Corrigan refuses, saying that as soon as the power's back on, Loeb's finally sending Gordon back to Chicago. Batman flies the blimp higher and higher until it's struck by a bolt of lightning, destroying a stabilizer. He manages to pilot it further until he can see the weather balloon and prepares to make the 70-foot jump. He leaps and grapples onto the platform below the balloon, barely making the jump. Once he clambers up onto the platform, however, he encounters Dr. Death himself. Gordon breaks into an office where he finds Enigma, sat behind a desk with a briefcase open on the table and a string tied to his finger. Gordon tells Enigma that he's under arrest, but follows the riddle of string to see that it's tied around a huge rock above him. Enigma lets go of the string, and the rock smashes through the floor below them along with Gordon. Back on the balloon, Death tells Batman that when he was fired from Wayne Enterprises, Enigma funded his black box, saying he believed that his formula would cure thousands. Death attacks Batman and knocks, out the, and knocks the jammer out of his hands. He dives for it, but the jammer falls off the platform as Death pulls Batman back. Batman, furious, brutally beats Death, causing his bones to react and grow. Death, a contorted mess of bone, struggles to escape from his self-made prison of bone wrapped around the platform barrier. Batman snaps a horn-like bone off Death's head and enters the balloon, smashing the computer inside. Death monologues saying that his son was in a war, but Philip Kane pulled him out for a safer assignment, looking for Bruce Wayne in a desert, but the nomads who lived there had booby-trapped the tunnels and killed the platoon of soldiers, including his son. Batman turns to see Death free, just before he's stabbed by Death's claws. The computer explodes on them, and Death refuses to take the shrapnel out of his body. Instead, he allows the bones to react until they grow so much they kill him. The grid is finally fixed, but doesn't power up. Instead, lights flicker on in the shape of a question mark. Batman finds the computer in the, t in the weather balloon to see it's if destroying it had stopped the signal, where the computer flashes with a question mark, and the entire city falls into the hands of the Riddler, as the restraining walls explode around the city, allowing the sea to flood the streets. Batman calls Gordon, saying he saw it all wrong, and this is all his fault. But as the weather balloon falls down into the destroyed city streets, Gordon says they were all at fault. Ooh, which is juxtaposed with finally seeing the death of the Wens, mm. which we haven't seen up until this point, have we? No, and it's one of those times where you don't mind it because he's earned showing it. Yeah. Because he didn't show it right at the beginning like everyone always does. Mm. Yeah, he's built up to it very slowly, and he's given them a love relationship with with Wayne as well Bruce yeah. with his mum and dad isn't it yeah. it's not that perfect one that sometimes you saw and then they went a little bit the other way where Thomas was a bit of a hard ass Yeah. so you wondered why Bruce worshipped him so much this is a much nicer balance mm. isn't it between his mum and his dad and it, you get the feeling as well it's not all about his dad Yeah. his daddy issues There's, he actually licked his mum as well mm. <laughs> which is always quite nice 
Um, and it, it's, it's quite a nice scene between them. Where yeah, the opening of the issue. Sorry, we should tell them. The opening yeah. of the issue with him playing with your expectations again. Bruce has seen Zorro. Yeah. as per year one but this time he saw it on his own when he was truant him from school and he's been picked up by Thomas and Martha and there's a lovely bit where he tells his dad he actually thought the mark of Zorro was dumb mm. and corny and swords against cannons he gets shot in two minutes Criti- meta-criticism about Batman why Batman yeah. doesn't carry a gun which was quite clever well, Batman's a modern day Zorro yeah and I love his dad's did, you were officially disinherited yeah I will have Alfred drop the purpose but then how he starts second guessing his opinions of the film yeah it's good it's a lovely little opening mm. and his dad's like well, I know the only solution to this is to go and see it again yeah because you're clearly wrong mm. in not enjoying it which is a conversation we've had quite a few times <laughs> about certain things but then to get that from that great panel of Batman smashing out of the bones mm. It is great, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just looking at the art, which makes for brilliant podcasting, I have to say. Snyder's set up that Gordon has no friends on the force and isn't respected. So when Batman gets in touch to tell him not to turn the power on, he has no control. Dan Corrigan's a smug asshat, mm. isn't he? But we've established that already. Um, so the civilians that Gordon's getting onto the bus, one of them's Harperone, the other's her, her brother. Oh, right, from the backup strip, and of course we know Harperone from later on don't we yeah is she wearing a cross or is she wearing an ankh it's a cross isn't it yeah not for a minute she was going all death on us <laughs> but she isn't there's um, cool lightning in this as well yeah there is the lightning effect do you think they're done in photoshop later on it's colouring yeah yeah it's done done in the colouring see that's why I don't know whether these would work in black and white so much of the art is done in the colouring now isn't it it's not that because Capullo's art is so good well he, he publishes th- his pencils on twitter doesn't he that, and yeah they've done an entire hardback devoted to his pencils oh, oh course of ours yeah. unwrapped yeah so his artwork is really really good it's just the colour enhances it yeah it is exceptional there's, there's just no other word for it the bat blimp is cool yeah um, especially as it comes bursting through the clouds and it's so much it's huger than, than everybody else yeah uh, and you've got to love the drama-, drama of it Batman's very dramatic isn't he <laughs> he has a flair for drama well as he said in the, the last issue of the first part Batman has a new subtlety yeah which is, is great I didn't understand well no, no what was brilliant about that as well Batman's slight grin why yeah. he's doing it he's <laughs> clearly enjoying it I didn't understand why it's the goddamn Batman was censored well yeah why could they say that in All Star Batman and Robin but they couldn't say it here and his middle finger in the first part yeah well I, well, I couldn't understand why yeah, that yeah. was censored well I don't know because um, in the death of the family they censored the Joker saying ass and yet they're allowed to show him missing a face yeah it's, it's very strange there doesn't seem to be any consistency to that DC's um, censorship, censorship yeah. as we pointed out in Final Crisis is all over the place though mm. yeah we did didn't we yeah. yeah there was contradictions in that as to what they censored and what they didn't wasn't there uh, everything about the leap from the bat blimp sequence is absolutely amazing from the dialogue to Batman's confidence in Alfred Sorry, Alfred's incredulity to the build-up and pay-off sequential storytelling at its absolute finest, isn't it? I love the the dialogue, or um, the, the wind's mostly at the, the wind's mostly at my back. But mostly. sir, the jump! I said mostly, damn it! <laughs> and because this pays, this goes off the beginning. 
yeah. when he uses the the same thing yeah, yeah. to rescue the, the people from hook. the Red Hood van. Yeah. It's exactly the same sequence. Yeah. Isn't it? Absolutely brilliant piece of story. Alfred again going, there is no way in hell you can reach it. The gun reaches 50 feet, sir. The balloon is nearly 70 feet away. That's an impossible leap. The wind is mostly up my back. It's a storm! I said mostly. It's absolutely brilliant. And Batman's just, I can do this. And he's very lucky you did. <laughs> yes. He, again, there's a certain element of luck involved. And a certain element of skill. The only thing I don't like about it is the Dark Knight Returns homage. The full page shot of him leaping through the sky with the lightning in the background. It's too much of a homage to Dark Knight Returns because Batman looks emaciated. Because he was in Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Whereas here, it doesn't... And you could completely cut that page. And it wouldn't matter. I really like it. Do you? Yeah. I could have done without it being such a blatant homage to Dark Knight Returns. I don't, I don't mind the blatant homages at all, especially not in such a big retelling of an origin. Because this, as much as a, re- a retelling of his origin, a new origin, it's a celebration of Batman. His history, yeah. Because it's his 75th, isn't it? This is yeah. the 75th anniversary storyline, really. Snyder is making up for Superman's 75th anniversary with Batman's. What, he's making up for the fact that Superman didn't get one? Unchained was his birthday story and was a bit naff. Yeah, well, we need to read all of it together. I just don't think Jim Lee's as good a sequential storyteller as Greg Capullo. Not anymore. I think if Greg Capullo had drawn Superman Unchained, maybe we'd have a different story. But he wouldn't have been able to do that. Seriously, I don't think so, they are. But... All right, okay. Yeah, yeah. You didn't tell him that when you met him, though, did you? I didn't, no, no. Very diplomatic. Yeah, I don't tell him what I didn't like, but I tell him what I really like. Well, because this is fantastic. Yeah, but that panel, I think, yeah, the page, even though it's so blatant, it works for it so much the better. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the oh, cover right. where he's jumping down like that. Yeah, so I don't have to dig it out of the bookshelf. Yeah, but... Right, okay, all right. And it brings back Batman's history as well, as well as making it so much more dynamic and... So you think this is better than Dark Knight Returns? I just think having that splash page works for the better. Okay. Alright, okay, I'll... uh, I can can see the argument against it. It's not that it's a a homage to Dark Knight Returns in the middle of the story. They've thrown in quite a lot of panels that are homages to previous stories, which is fine. It's that I didn't think he drew Batman proper, though. It's too much of a homage. I don't mind the pose being the same. I wish he'd drawn the big, thick, chunky, muscular Batman that's on the next page. Rather than this skinny one. He's been skinny throughout he's, the issue. He's not as bulked up as he normally is. I don't know. I don't know. There's just something the about it I didn't like. between the zero-year Batman and the current Batman is that he was a lot skinnier then. Not skinnier, but he's bulkier now. And that's how he differentiated the two. No, I don't mind that. But he's still a big guy. Look at that muscle. Well, he's exaggerated in a few places. Is he? Yeah. And it's also, as part of your storytelling, having that wordless... As he leaps. It's just... It slows you down. You take a minute to go, holy shit. And, yeah, it brings you into the story that much more because it slows you down as much as it slows down for him. It's slow motion in comic form. Alright, go on. I'll, you've, you've convinced me. <laughs> you've changed my mind. 
Alright, okay, I'll go with that. Uh, the scene between Ed McNeil... Oh, we didn't mention last time Philip Kane in the Golden Age raised Bruce. Yeah. There was no Alfred in the Golden Age. Right. So that, I thought that was quite a nice touch. I just completely forgot to mention it. Um, Nigma scene with Gordon, with the rock being held up on a bunch of pulleys yeah. on one piece of string is glorious in what it says about the Riddler's need to control every situation that he's in. Also, that rock, mm. it's the same rock Philip Kane had in his office in the last story. So it is. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's a very tense scene as well, isn't it? It's masterfully done. I like that Gordon figures it out. One of the things Snyder's has done a very good job of is never making any of the characters seem dumb no. to, to make Nigma seem clever. Yeah. Nigma is that much cleverer than everyone in the room, well, but he will be brought down by his own hubris. And everyone else is just that bit slower mm, even up to this point Batman yeah Nigma's outsmarted him at every step of the game here yeah and when we get into the final chapter the final third of the story it's so much better for it yeah but Nigma then starts being cocky and that's when Batman brings him down it's not even that it's I don't want to give it away but it's not his we're going to give it away next week yeah 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 but I don't want to give it away too early it's not his intelligence for him slipping up in it's the Batman's last part. just smarter than him. It's not even that. It's he can't. He's not a fighter. Mm. And ultimately, that's what it all comes down to. Batman can fight, and the Riddler can't. Right. Okay. I've not read the last two yet. I've only read the first two for next week's show. Right. I mean, I've read them. Yeah. But I've not reread them because this is one of those where I ended up just reading all four of them and then realised, oops, I've not made any notes. <laughs> I mean, we've got that here for next week's show. I've read two of them and oh, I've not done the notes. Yeah. Because <laughs> you just get so sucked into doing the story. The synopsis is, is a pain in the ass when you're enjoying the story. Yeah, synopsis is a pain in the ass anyway. Um, it's exceptionally well drawn and wonderfully executed but the Doctor Death storyline feels a little bit in the way yeah I mean it's not bad in any way but the Riddler stuff's just more interesting and you want more of that yeah but the Doctor Death stuff is part of the Riddler's plot Hmm. so you do kind of need it it's not it doesn't detract it's not bad it's great stuff but I wanted more of Batman vs. the Riddler at this point. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which is good writing. I want more mm. than what he's given me, so it's great. There's a great page as well where it's Batman pounding on Doctor Death and his bones growing out. Mm, and snapping and, and cracking and I don't I don't know. And how Batman tries to um, stop the Riddler by smashing the computer. I did like his line, what's his name? You want pain? Let me help you with that. And then just elbowing him yeah. in the face. Because he's mad now. He's, oh, yeah, he's mad as hell. There is no way Batman can win now, and he knows that. So he basically just kicks the crap out of and him. And he, yeah, he, he's no other choice. He resorts to smashing the computer because he can't win. Because so he's, he's frustrated. Yeah. Because he's not the Batman he's, yet. Well, he's dropped the jammer as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, he dropped it, but Hellphone kind of prevented him from reaching it as well, didn't he? Yeah. So, so that's why he's so mad at him. Yeah, yeah he's just really, really annoyed at this point. Um, we finally, like we said at the beginning, we finally get the death of the Waynes at the end of book two, in many ways, which we, we didn't get. We haven't had prior. And again, it's one of those flashbacks, current day flashbacks, current day situations that Snyder's done really, really well. Martha's death is much more brutal here 
than it has ever been before. Yeah. In the original stories, Martha was killed with Thomas. And later iterations have her die of a heart attack after seeing her husband killed before her eyes. And then it got taken back to the original tent that, that she was shot dead with them. Yeah. In none of those retellings, though, was Martha so callous, callously executed with a gunshot to the back of the head in front of her son. Yeah. Which is what happens here. She's bending over Thomas, who's just been shot, and whoever it is doing the shooting puts the gun to the back of her head and pulls the trigger. Mm. Her death has never been that graphic. And it's not that... Yeah, it's graphic, but it's not gratuitous. And mixed into the scene around it as well, because this... If Zero Year was Star, Star Wars... Mm-hmm. This is the Empire Strikes this Back. Is the, the, uh, yeah, the Empire Strikes Back, because everyone loses, and he doesn't just lose, he... You know, Batman gets destroyed... Mm. And so having Bruce Wayne and his life also get destroyed. At the same and we're time. seeing them happen yeah. concurrently, yeah? Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, yeah, I think you can argue it has to be brutal. The Wayne's death has to make an impact on Bruce and be unforgettable for him. In the same way Paul Verhoeven insisted Alex Murphy's death had to be brutal in Robocop. This kind of has to be like this for it to have such an impact on him. And also, you can argue that maybe it has to get more brutal because in every iteration because we're just desensitised personally I'm sick of seeing the Waynes be killed it's it, it happens every time they tell an origin story or every time well, there's which a it movie has to, or a cartoon yeah. but because of how many times they've done it it's just become boring yeah this wasn't though because it was so because of in the execution yeah. I th- this was far harsher certainly Martha's death Thomas he just gets shot like he always does yeah but what he did I, I just thought that Martha's death was more brutal than it has ever been before and maybe they could make a little bit more of his mum it's always about his dad isn't it yeah like his mum wasn't important like Superman's daddy issues with Jor-El and, yeah. and all of that stuff uh, this issue is almost a textbook example of building tension and not stopping. As the conclusion of the second act, Snyder and Capullo make every scene as tense as possible, building and building and yet denying the reader a climax. Normally this would be annoying, mm. but as with Empire Strikes Back, which Michael's already alluded to, or Back to the Future 2, the fact that there is a conclusion of sorts, in this case the Doctor Death story, alleviates some of these issues and Snyder's deft handling of the scenes, Bruce and Gordon realising they failed, Enigma's ultimate triumph just keeps the reader on the edge of the seat. You cannot say enough good things about it. To the point where I don't want people to go and read it. Yeah. Because we've probably built it up more than it is. Mm. If you've not read it, don't go and read it. Skip over it. Yeah, because you're probably going to go back from this now and go, it's not as good as I said it was. Mm. But we read this monthly and then go back and read it again and it was just sublime. It was just when absolutely brilliant stuff. I read it for the first time. Um, I think the only last issue that I've never been disappointed with is uh, Zero Year Part 1. Because for the rest of them, when I read it for the first time, I thought, oh, is that it? And so going back on it, because having this second part end with Bruce Wayne, uh, a young Bruce with his parents killed and he's crying out for help, having that end like that, I just thought, you know, disappointed. Yeah. It doesn't end, it's just... But going back to read it again, I really do like it. That's part of all of it. Essentially, 
Batman, Bruce Wayne didn't grow up. And so it all comes down to he, he's he got everything wrong. Batman's he's not done anything right. He's been beaten at every occasion. He's been wrong at every occasion or one step too far behind. And so all it burns down to is him needing to ask for help. So He can't it, do it on his own. It ends with him asking for help. Which I really liked. Very good. It's great. It is. Alright, okay, next time we will conclude as the Euro Year with whatever it's called. Savage, Savage City. City yeah. Savage City. Final four issues next time. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics